0: Amen. Well, good morning. Um, I might be a new face to some of you or to many of you. Um, I've been coming here to ECC for about a year. Um, I'm married to Lee, um, who was at the first service. I don't think she's here. And then we have two little girls. Um, Sophia is just about three and Greta is just about six months old. So if you've seen Sophia going for the, the powdered sugar donuts with the powdered sugar all over her face, that's, she's ours. Um, it 's been we 've really enjoyed being here at at ECC um, we, we got connected with you guys we, bu- we bought a house like two blocks away and found out there was a church that met at the Shoreview community center and Here we are um, we 're both somewhat native Minnesotans. My wife grew up in Fergus Falls and I grew up in fargo so we 're almost in Minnesota. Um, but we were right on the river. So if you hit a golf ball, you know, you could land it in Minnesota. Um, we, we lived in the cities for a little while after we were married. I went to school down here. Then we packed our bags, and we lived in Boston uh, for about three years. I went to seminary out there, and then we moved back here. Um, so that's, that's what landed us here. And it's, it's a pleasure to be with you, and we've loved our time um, at ECC. And especially, we like that, that the church takes the time— um, to recognize certain seasons of the church calendar or the church year. And if you were here last Sunday, uh, you heard Pastor Chris talk a lot about Lent, which is the season that we're in right now. And if you look up front, you know, we've got the purple up there, and there's a pretty big cross, you know, right behind me. We don't usually have a cross that's that front and that center. Uh, But we do that intentionally because during this time, during this preparation leading up to Easter, we intentionally focus on Jesus and on what he ultimately came here to do, which was to die, um, and as we contemplate that and walk with him through his life and through his ministry, and we get to Easter Sunday morning, that good news is so much better because we spent this time contemplating that. So as we've been going through uh, through this period of Lent, we're, we're talking about John, uh, the Gospel of John, and in the series called Revelations. Uh, so this morning, the, the the topic Chris had asked me to speak on is John's signs, uh, And a little background with with me in relation to John, I, so I went to seminary and I had to take a class on a gospel. And for whatever reason, I did not want to take the class on John. I tried to get into all the other (laughs) classes and it just didn't work. And so wouldn't you know, the only class that worked out was John. And as it seems to happen, that ended up being my favorite class. Um, I, I grew to appreciate this gospel so much. It, it's now my favorite because there's so much meat to it. There's so many levels of, of meaning and themes that are woven into it that we could spend certainly all morning, all day. Won't keep you here that long. Um, but we, you spend a lifetime studying John and you wouldn't exhaust its resources. Uh, so we're going to look at just a little bit of it this morning and we're talking about signs. Um, we're all pretty familiar with signs in our lives. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been faced with a big decision. And, you know, I've prayed, you know, God, give me a sign that I'm supposed to do this or to go that or marry this person or move to this place. Um, I was reminded of the importance of following signs when they're given uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, my wife and I were traveling. We were actually driving to a funeral in the middle of South Dakota. Do we have any South Dakota natives here this morning? Nobody? One. All right. Well, so we're driving in the middle of nowhere, South Dakota, where there's a lot of middle of nowheres in South Dakota. Um, and we came across, so we, we, went to the funeral at the funeral. We're driving on our way back, you know, we're on our nice dressed up clothes and there was a, a, a road construction. There was a detour. Um, my wife and I were actually engaged at the time we weren't married. And I, I, said, well, I don't want to take the detour. That takes too long. We're going to go off on our own and I'll, I'll do a shortcut to get back to the interstate. And my wife, not having the wisdom that has come with the last five and a half years of marriage said, okay. <laughs> so, so we were driving And uh, we come across this sign, Minimum Maintenance Road, Travel at Your Own Risk. This isn't the actual sign. I pulled it off the internet, but it was that sign. And I said, oh, that's okay. And we're driving my 1999 Toyota Camry, which, you know, it's not such an off-roading kind of car. Um, So we drove, we went a couple miles, we go up a hill and down and through several inches of mud, which was kind of cool. But then the road stopped. There was no more road. It had been washed out like 10 years ago. You know, all the locals probably knew you just don't go anywhere on that road. There was no road at all. So we t- I tried to turn around and we tried to go back up the hill, but there was too much mud and we couldn't go back up. We were absolutely stuck. So I thought, well, I'll just drive through the field with my Toyota Camry and, and we'll, we'll get around like that. <laughs> yeah, and if, if you've ever grown up on a farm or been around there, that doesn't happen. So we went about 10 feet and bottomed out and we were stuck. So a couple hours later, I called AAA, tried to tell him where in the world I was in the middle of a field. <laughs> the guy comes out and he winches me out, and I'm sure he, he just went and laughed about me later. You know, follow, follow, I would have been a whole lot better off. I, granted, I wouldn't have had this story, um, but I would have been a whole lot better off not having done that. And if we didn't have AAA, I don't know what would have happened. That would, we were in trouble. Signs are important, and they're usually there for our benefit. Um, you know, they're, they're not, they're, they're telling us something that we ought to know or that we ought to do and, and we ought to listen to them. You know, we have stop signs and traffic signals and everything like that to keep things orderly. So in John, that we're talking about signs and John uses the word sign or the term sign very specifically that has a very similar function to that road sign. John talks about signs as being a, an event or something like that, that points us to something else that points the way to something that we should do or to believe or to think. John connects signs, especially with the Old Testament, and we're going we're to get there and we're going to unpack that in a, in a little bit of detail here coming up. But generally, when we're looking at signs, we're going to go through John 6 this morning and, and look at Jesus feeding the 5,000. And as we dive into it, and we're going to of unpack that text in detail, uh, we're looking for why does Jesus do these signs? Um, you know, often Jesus' signs meets some kind of surface physical need. But in meeting that, he points us to something else, to some other need, some deeper need that Jesus himself also fulfills. So that's what we're looking for. As we look at this passage, what need is Jesus meeting? And then what does it teach us about himself? What does it teach him, teach us about our, ourselves and how Jesus can meet our needs? So let's dive into John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. I'm reading, by the way, from the, this is the ESV or the English Standard Version. It might differ. If you're following along, you might have a different version. Um, If you don't have a Bible of your own, um, we have a table on the back on the left-hand side as you leave. Um, You're welcome to take a Bible completely free, uh, free of charge on your way out. And and we love having to restock those. So feel free to do that if if you don't have one. John 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Whenever we see a passage that starts with the words, after this, or therefore, or because of this, we're always wise to look back at the preceding context to say, what's been going on? What's the connection between this verse and the the previous verses? So here in John 5, Jesus has just performed another sign at the beginning of 5. Um, some Jesus's signs in, entailed usually healings. Um, and if you look at other other gospels, they've, they've called them miracles um, or or signs or something like that. They wouldn't call them signs. They call them miracles or, or healings. But in John, they're called signs. So in John 5, Jesus had healed uh, somebody who'd been paralyzed for a long time, which was called a sign. And after that, Jesus made some pretty incredible claims, S- especially he claimed to be equal to God. He called God his own father. And if you were here last week, Chris talked a lot about that, that Jesus is saying and doing things that you only say, that only God says and does. Or John says things about Jesus you only say about God. Jesus is calling himself God. He's making some pretty big claims. And to the Jews of that day, they're pretty surprised, to say the least. Um, Having been steeped in the Old Testament, um, to have somebody come and, and claim that that he, that, God, that he has some kind of a connection with God is, is, is pretty strong. And Jesus makes that even more emphatic at the end of chapter 5. Uh, the last two verses, Jesus is saying, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus is, is saying, his the audacity to say that Moses wrote about me, which is pretty powerful. That That turned a few heads. Um, and keep in mind, as we're going to dive into John 6, 3, that, that Jesus is making a connection between himself and Moses. That'll be important. So we get into John 6. Uh, Jesus goes away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So that the term that's used in Greek for sign is a, it's the term that's used um, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to refer especially to God's signs, God's miracles that he did to bring the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt uh, through the desert and into the promised land, through the the exodus and and their their journeyings after that. Um, It's often, if you read in the Psalms, um, a lot of those are reflections back on that time where God, through his signs, or you'll see signs and wonders that kind of go together, um, those are supernatural events that God does on behalf of his people to bring them into the promised land. So that And that term is used by no accident here. So Jesus is doing these signs, and people are seeing the signs, and they're attracted to him. They're curious. They're intrigued. They, they want to know what this Jesus is about. So they're following him. Jesus goes up on this mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And again, the mention of a mountain in John is, I don't think, an accident. Uh, if you look again at the Old Testament, mountains are usually places of revelation um moses goes up on mount sinai to receive the ten commandments Uh, and there are other stories where where you go up on a mountainside to be closer to god or to, to learn something about god so when jesus is going up and he's teaching he's telling us something about god he's revealing something to us we have a little more context here uh it's passover time the feast of the jews Uh, Passover was one of the biggest Jewish festivals. Um, It was very tied in with their identity as a people. It looked back and celebrated that exodus I was talking about where God brought them out of Egypt. Um, Part of the preparations for Passover involved getting rid of any yeast from from people's houses and you would bake unleavened bread or bread without yeast for a full week before the Passover. And since we're talking in this passage about the feeding of the 5,000, again, that's not an accident that this is mentioned. Uh, People are going through these preparations. Uh, Bread is foremost in their minds, and Jesus is about to do something with bread. Again, it's pointing to something about himself. So it's Passover time. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, Jesus actually isn't intending to go out and buy anything. He's kind of setting up the sign. Um, we think Philip was from this area. So Jesus is is essentially asking a local, hey, who do you know? Where can we go and get some food? And Jesus really full well knows the answer. (laughs) Nowhere. Uh, Or at least if there is food, we don't have money. Um, So Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus is up to something. Philip answered him, 200 denarii, that means 200 days' wages. A denarius was just a day's wage. 200 days' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little, let alone feed them for a whole meal. I mean, that's like flying on an airline nowadays. You get a little. You know, you get peanuts or pretzels or something that tides you over until you get to your destination and can spend money there. You know, we can't even, Philip is saying, we can't even tide people over until their next meal. Well, we can't do it. So one of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, who was also from this region, uh, said to him, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Well, G- G- there are plenty for Jesus, for his purposes. Jesus says, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So if you, if you look in your Bibles, you probably have a heading on this section that says something like, feeding of the 5,000. Uh, But if you cross-reference this with the other Gospels, we realize it probably wasn't just men who were gathered. There were women and children, too. And if you add everybody up, it's more like the feeding of the 15 or the feeding of the 20,000 and not just five. There are a lot of people here. That's a pretty serious church (laughs) potluck. You know, we fed fed a bunch of people last week, and that was a couple hundred. 15 or 20,000, that's a lot of bread. You know, and they don't have, you know, 20... 20 crockpots full of chili, they have five barley loaves and two fish. And that's just a poor person's meal. Barley wasn't a fancy grain. If you had money, you, you had wheat bread or something like that. But barley, that was you know, the poor person's bread. So they have a, a, a poor person's meal, maybe for a, one person or for a family, They're, and Jesus is going to do something with that. The other interesting thing um, I want to point out in this passage is we have a little detail Now there was much grass in the place. I can't think of any way to extract any kind of theological significance out of there being grass there. Um, Other than it was springtime and Passover happens in the spring and it makes sense that there would be grass growing in the spring. I think it's just little things like this you find throughout the Gospels that are earmarks of eyewitness testimony or eyewitness detail. You know, if you've ever had to testify or if you've ever just related something to, to somebody, you often remember little insignificant details about an event. And we have that here in the, in the New Testament as well. Somebody's not making this stuff up. You know, this is, somebody has sat down and said, oh yeah, remember that time, when? And then here's the story. So Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those had eaten. Whoa. I mean, we, we hear the story a lot, you know, especially if you've grown up in the church or been in the church, it's like, yeah, yeah, Jesus fed 5,000 people or 20,000 people. I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like to be there, to see Jesus give thanks over this very small meal, and he just starts passing out bread. And they just keep passing it and keep passing it. And can you imagine what the reaction would be as you saw this food just overflowing? And these people went crazy. I mean, they ate as much as they wanted to. This wasn't just a, a tiding over meal. So much so that they gathered and filled 12 baskets left over. And that was just Jewish custom to go in to pick up uh, leftover fragments from a meal. Um, you, would, you would pick them up and save them. It's a pretty cool miracle. So the people, rightly, are amazed. Uh, They see the sign, and they say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So the people see this, and they make a direct connection with the Old Testament. I talked a little bit about the connection between Jesus and Moses. In the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, there's a passage where God is saying that he was going to raise up for the Israelites a prophet like Moses. And that's what these people are referring to. They see Jesus do this thing, this miracle, and they connect him with at least the Old Testament prophets, at least with Moses, and they say, ah, this is the guy that Moses wrote about. Not only that, they, see, they, they make that connection, then they take it in a step further, perceiving then that um, they were to, about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the people, being amazed, translated that immediately into, let's take Jesus. He's clearly something special. He's clearly a prophet or, or something. Let's make him king. Let's, he can surely throw out these Romans who are oppressing us. You know, let's, let's set up a kingdom under him. Let's have us a revolution. And Jesus is saying, that's, that's not what I'm about at all. He didn't come to build an earthly kingdom like that. And Jesus withdraws. So here we have the sign. We have the the situation presented, and Jesus meets it. People are coming. They're hungry. They need something to eat. And Jesus provides for them. But that's not the full function of a sign. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more. Because Jesus is going to say, Hey, remember remember what I did. Remember how I fed you. This points to a deeper reality, a deeper need in each one of you. And here's how I fill that, too. Like I filled you with bread... I can feel you at a deeper level, too. So we're going to jump ahead. Uh, We're going to skip over, and we're going to start at verse 25. Um, In between here, um, night falls. Jesus and his disciples leave the area. The disciples get in a boat, and they row back across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus decides to walk across the sea instead, Um, gets in the boat, and then instantly the boat arrives at land. We could spend time talking about that miracle as well. But just further testifies that Jesus is God, that he has mastery over creation. So they get back to Capernaum, and the people wake up the next morning, and they're hungry, maybe again. They at least want more of what Jesus has been providing. So they go looking for him, and they have to walk several miles, and they eventually find him. And when they found him, I'm picking up here, uh, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Well, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So Jesus is saying, basically, you're not even coming to me because you're curious about these signs or because you want to know what I'm going to teach you about God. You're hungry. You want another meal. So he questions their motives. Then he says, don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Ah, so Jesus is going deeper with the people. He's saying that food, you're always going to be hungry. And no matter how many times you go to Old Country Buffet and stuff yourselves silly, you're going to get hungry again someday. That's, that's just a need that you always have to fill. But it points to a deeper spiritual need. So the people ask Jesus. And so Jesus is pointing them to their need for food that endures to eternal life that he, the Son of Man, would give to them. And the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. Um, That the Son of Man will give to you on whom God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus is basically saying, I'm the authorized representative sent from God to offer you eternal life. Jesus is kind of cutting to the chase here. We're, We're not talking about physical hunger anymore. So then they said to him, Well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So they're they're curious. They're they're wondering, what do we got to do to at least please God, to to make him happy, to be acceptable before him? What do we have to do? And Jesus answers, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's a pretty powerful statement. Let's take a little bit of time to, to unpack that. So they're saying, what do we have to do to please God? And I think that's a question that wasn't only asked in the first century, but that humanity is asked down to the present day, "Is What do we have to do to please God? What do we have to do for salvation? What do we have to—what kinds of things are expected of us to you know, attain that ultimate goal? And if you look at a lot of the world's religions that are out there— they answer that question. They, re- they really try to answer it. They try to spell out, here are the things that you have to do to attain that ultimate state, whether it's going to heaven or to attain enlightenment or you know, what have you. Here are the things you have to do. But Christianity isn't like that. And Jesus says here, the thing you have to do is to believe. It's to believe. It's not give away 15% of your income and fast six times a week and, and do all of these things. It's to believe. Now, Christianity, it's, it's fundamentally, it's news. It's, it's good news. It's proclaiming that what we had to do, Jesus already did for us. It's kind of mind-blowing. We're so used to that because we've grown up in that. That's pretty mind-blowing. So when we're talking about these signs... again, we're not talking just about the first century. I think that applies directly to us today. Jesus, with these people, he's kind of cutting to the heart of the issue. He takes them from their physical need and he says, well, there are things deeper than that that you also need. And I don't know where each of you is is coming from this morning or what kinds of needs you have in your life, but um, we all have needs of some kind. And I think now we, I was thinking of ways to, to talk about that, and there are really three main buckets we can put those deeper needs in, uh, the, the the things that drive us as we go throughout our life. Um, one of the things that I find true to myself is there's a need for some kind of success. I mean, we want to, especially in our culture um, here in, in the U.S., we want to be successful in whatever context that is for us, whether it's in the business world or with your family or in school, I mean, we don't want to come to the end of our lives and say, "Well, I kind of wasted it." You know, we want our lives to count. We want our lives to, to be meaningful. So we've got some kind of a need for success or achievement or feeling that life has been worthwhile. I think another thing that drives us is a need for security. Um, you know, financial security probably jumps foremost to our minds, especially given the economy and you know the difficult straits that a lot of people are in. You know, we want to know where our, our meal is coming from today at noon and then where our next meal is coming from and we'd really like to have money in the bank so we can eat tomorrow and next week and you know you can extrapolate that out Um, there's a need for some kind of an emotional security you know we want to to know we're secure there or or physical security even so i think at a deeper level we have needs for success and for security and i think a third one is is to belong to feel that there's somewhere where we can be who we are. We don't have to put on any pretenses. You can put on your ugly slippers and, you know, just be yourself. You know, it's you're looking for a place to call home, to have people around you who accept you and who love you for, for who you are, um, whether that be a husband or wife or your families. We have a need to belong. So to keep those, those categories in mind. Those are, I think... They're not exhaustive. You could probably think of others, but those are a good way to to articulate the deeper needs that a lot of us come with. So let's jump back into John and see what Jesus is saying to these people about their deeper needs. We're going to pick up um, partway through the slide here at verse 30. So Jesus has said, basically, believe in me. So they said to him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread for heaven, from heaven to eat. And that's kind of ironic because Jesus just did a pretty awesome sign dealing with bread from heaven. So I don't know, maybe these people weren't there, but you know, maybe they just didn't get it. I don't know. But they're, they're saying, well, prove it. You know, what sign can you do? And Jesus has proved it. Um, again, manna from the, the wilderness, that's making a connection to the Old Testament again, where they were led out from Egypt through the Exodus into the promised land, and God provided food called manna. Um, Manna literally means, what is it? Um, God provided food, and we're actually for them. So they're saying, give us a sign. Well, then Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So he's... Jesus is kind of taking them to the next level, right in that sentence. He's saying, it's not just about food again. It's my father who's giving you bread. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They're still not quite tracking with them. They say, oh, bread from heaven. That sounds cool. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And the ironic thing is that that is probably accurate. Because Jesus has come to give them bread, true life, himself, forever. And Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's saying, I'm the answer. Whatever that that physical need is pointing to your deeper spiritual need of of needing life, of needing some kind of purpose, of, of, of needing ultimately salvation. And that's found in me. Just as I fed you physically, I can feed you spiritually as well. But I said to but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of whom He whom sent, the will of Him who sent me. He's basically saying, believe in me, and I, if you come to me, I'm not going to turn you away. I'm not going to cast you out. I'll accept you. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So here we go. Jesus has gone deeper with them. He's taken their physical hunger and said, this really points to your spiritual hunger that you can't fill by yourself, but it can only be filled through me. Again, I don't know where you're coming from this morning, um, but I know in, in my life I tend to try to fill those, those deeper needs or those desires in a lot of different ways. Um, and I, a lot of times, so I, I work full-time in the corporate world, I a lot of times fall into the trap of letting that world kind of define my criteria for success or achievement that can be exhausting. You know, when we have the thing, when we spend a lifetime or we spend at least a lot of time laboring for something that we think we really want, when we get it, we realize that may not be the thing that ultimately satisfies us. I came across a quote recently um, in a book by Tim Keller. I don't know if you are Tim Keller fans or have heard of him. Um, He's a pastor in New York city. um, And he, shared a quote that he had read from a lady named Cynthia Heimel, who was a a noted feminist author. She wrote for a column in Playboy for a lot of years. Um, Not your typical source for a Sunday morning, (laughs) but she's really getting to the point. She's known her fair share of celebrities in her day, and she writes, "'I pity celebrities. No, I do. "'They were once perfectly pleasant human beings "'with whom you might lunch on a slow Tuesday afternoon.' The night each of them became famous, they wanted to shriek with relief. Finally, now they were adored, invincible, magic. The morning after the night each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose, barbiturates. All their fantasies had been realized, yet the reality was still the same. If they were miserable before, they were twice as miserable now because that giant thing that they were striving for, that fame that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and ha-ha, happiness, had happened. And nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. I don't know if any of you are aspiring to be a a celebrity, um, but certainly in in our culture, those, those are often the people that we look up to and adore and think, oh, if I could only be famous or if I could only have the kind of money that they have, at least, life would look a little bit better. I wouldn't struggle as much with, whatever. And taking it from people who have been there, that doesn't satisfy. And I think if you've ever been around kids at Christmas time, or if you remember from your own childhood, if there's ever been a toy that you've really, really wanted, you know, and you spend a lot of time asking mom and dad, give me, you know, whatever, and you get it, and it goes to the bottom of the toy bin in two weeks, and you're looking for something else. You know, we're, we're not generally content people. And I think a lot of that is because we look for our ultimate fulfillment in things that just can't give us that. We look to, to satisfy those needs in ways that, that just don't work, that ultimately are going to let us down. So I think Jesus wants to go deeper with each one of us, too. Um, he wants us to, to listen to the signs that he's given us and to challenge what, what are we spending our time and what are we spending our resources and, and everything pursuing? You know, is it success and security and belonging? And if so, how do you pursue those? What, what drives you in your, in your daily life? Because I think the things that we commonly strive for and the way that we value ourselves is not necessarily the way that, that Jesus indicates things are worth. I mean, with him, true success, it's not climbing the corporate ladder or getting into the college of your choice or raising great kids. You know, it's it's to be told, ultimately, well done, good and faithful servant. That you've been faithful with what God has given to you. That you have looked out for those around you, those who are disadvantaged or hungry or thirsty or in prison or you name it. That's true success. True security isn't found in how much you own or, or you know, the ways that you can just feel good about and secure about your life. True security ultimately is found in having an eternal hope, a hope that no matter what happens to you, no matter whether you get a, a diagnosis or lose a job or you just can't provide, a security that, that goes beyond all of that because you know that your future is secure, that nothing that happens to you here on this earth can change that. I think that's true hope and true security. And true belonging. I mean, who better to belong to than the one who made you, who knows you intimately, inside and out? He's your true home, whatever anybody else may say. So I think Jesus wants to go deeper with each one of you. The band is going to come up and and play a a closing song of reflection. Um, And as they play, the the song is called How Great is Our God is a good good song has been around for a while i would challenge you to, to think about that you know, how do you what what do you spend your time and your energy pursuing and i would challenge you to find your ultimate satisfaction in jesus himself because anything else it's just going to let you down but he never will